welcome to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning with Wigan and Dana, the show where CPAs, insurance professionals, investment brokers, trust companies, CFPs, and more can firm up on their understanding of estate planning strategies so they can better guide their clients to make wise decisions with their legacy. Future Focus is hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the Private Client Services Department at Wigan and Dana. Subscribe to Future Focused Sophisticated Estate Planning on your favorite podcast platform and share episodes with your clients. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron and Michael. So today's topic is fixing irrevocable trusts. As we've talked about a couple times, our first episode, we talked about planning for beneficiaries and using trusts. We've talked about slats and gifting. Inevitably, in a lot of the planning that we do, we create trusts, either lifetime trusts or trusts that are in effect after death. Sometimes clients want to change those or grantors want to change them or beneficiaries would like them tweaked or the trustees think something can be done better. And we have these irrevocable trusts that on their name say can't be changed. Why sometimes, Aaron, do clients or trustees or beneficiaries want to change the terms of the irrevocable trusts? There are so many reasons why someone might want to change an irrevocable trust. Oftentimes, people think that they're locked in to the terms the trust provides, and it's really not the case for a few reasons, but the things that prompt people to come in generally are because of changed circumstances, either changes in the tax law that make the planning within a trust not as optimal as it could be. It could be changes in circumstances for beneficiaries. Perhaps one beneficiary has circumstances that make asset protection planning much more desirable than it had been when the trust was initially created. And of course, there are always going to be times when you are presented with a trust that perhaps has errors in it that should be fixed or The terms don't accurately reflect what the client had intended. So there are a lot of different circumstances that we address when people come with their irrevocable trusts and concerns. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, you see those changes in the tax law may require us to or advise us to make tweaks or changes to the trust that we might do through a decanting or through a modification. The beneficiary's needs, you have a trust, for example, that You have a beneficiary who maybe has special needs that you didn't know about and you wanted to see if you can make it into a trust that would qualify as a special needs trust. And the errors, absolutely for sure, can be, especially for older trusts, you have a trust in there and there's something that's just wrong and you want to figure out a way to fix it. So what mechanisms do we have to help change an irrevocable trust? Yeah, so the answer to that will be somewhat dependent on the jurisdiction that we're in. Here in Connecticut, we have a recently adopted version of the Uniform Trust Code, which is now in the majority of U.S. states. And that statute provides a number of different methods for changing an irrevocable trust. And and typically, it's broken down into strategies that require judicial intervention. So, 
going to a court here, it would likely be probate. In some other states, it would be a version of superior court. But getting a judge to intervene either through the consent of parties or not, it could just be on petition. Here, there are options for non-judicial modifications as well. People are typically familiar with the term non-judicial settlement agreement, which would involve all of the interested parties signing off on changes. Now, those categories are often limited by the changes that can be made using that strategy. So we're often looking for, you know, a mechanism that provides more flexibility and certainly a trust, a well-drafted newer trust often will, pursuant to its own terms, have ways in which you can modify the trust. And then that looming concept of decanting is a favorite for many. And decanting traditionally is thought of as moving all of the assets of one trust to a new trust, but it can take a lot of different forms. Absolutely. Yes. When I think about it and and highlight it, I think you're absolutely right. We have that jurisdiction dependent, right? We start in that jurisdiction. What are the options? And often your division there is right on par, right? Are there things, requirements that we can do it, but we have to go to court to get it approved? Are there ways that we can do it through a non-judicial settlement agreement? And sometimes... There's something in between where maybe the action simply requires notice to beneficiaries. I think other ideas that we see out there or some words that we hear is trust modifications. You know, those modifications may require court approval or maybe it's a non-judicial settlement agreement. In Connecticut, we think about modifying trust maybe by dividing them or maybe by merging them together. And then we have the big one, which we'll, we'll focus on for the balance of our episode today, which is decanting. Yeah, absolutely. That was a perfect way to frame it. And decanting is a big topic, which is why we can dedicate a whole episode to it. But maybe I think the best way to start the conversation and to frame it is to give a quick background on sort of the legal theory of decanting. And it makes the topics that flow from it a little bit easier to understand. So the idea of decanting has been around since at least the mid-20th century, when there was a number of court cases involving changes to trusts that relied on a trustee's power of distribution. And, you know, the famous holding comes from a 1940 case that was down in Palm Beach that held that a trustee's power to distribute outright to a beneficiary necessarily includes a power to distribute for the benefit of a beneficiary. So we take that sort of tenant and use it as the grounds to change trust. So instead of making a a distribution outright to one beneficiary, we instead make a distribution of all of a trust assets to another trust for the benefit of the same or similar beneficiaries. Now, I say similar because based on that theory of decanting, the one thing that you can really never do or achieve through a decanting is to add beneficiaries. So if we're basing 
all of these powers off of what a trustee could do pursuant to the terms of the original trust. Certainly that power does not include a power to distribute to someone who wasn't a present beneficiary. So we pay close attention to that when we're talking about trust modification. Oftentimes a desire for a trust change in a client is to add beneficiaries. And that's not something we achieve here, but it provides a lot of flexibility based on the fact that we're really focused on that power of distribution. Yeah. So we start, we think about decanting and we start at the common law and it stems that idea of transferring assets from one trust to another stems from the trustee's power to make a distribution to a beneficiary. So what are the mechanics then, or what are you looking at in a trust when you're thinking about common law decanting? That's a great question. And for listeners who have listened to prior episodes, one of the first ones that we did recently was on asset protection planning. And we talked about the different types of distribution standards in that episode. And typically within the the trust and estates world, we can break a distribution standard down into one of two categories, one being an ascertainable standard, sometimes called HEMS, because it directs the trustee to make distributions for a beneficiary's health, education, maintenance, and support. There are different iterations of that type of standard, but it's generally tied to one of those things, if not all. The other category is an absolute discretion standard. So the grantor has vested in the trustee the power to make distributions to beneficiaries in that trustee's absolute discretion. And in that prior episode regarding asset protection planning, we talked about how that distribution standard was great for creditor protection because it didn't necessarily create a legal entitlement in the beneficiary to the trust assets. So now we can sort of pivot to talking about the second big benefit that flows from that distribution standard. So when looking at decanting pursuant to common law, a key will be that ability of a trustee to make distributions for any purpose in the trustee's absolute discretion. And the reason for that being that if we're relying on the distribution power to distribute to another trust, we're much more comfortable if the trustee is permitted to make distributions for any purpose to do that in further trust than if the distribution standard were limited to health, education, maintenance, and support, or some version of that. Well, great. So just looking at it from that big picture perspective, we have a trust that we we want to change for some purpose. The trustee has the complete discretion to do that. How does the trustee actually do it under the common law? Sure. So if, if we want to completely replace a trust, so the traditional type of decanting where we're moving assets of an original trust to a new trust, the strategy that Michael and I typically would use is to have a trustee sign a document that we would call a, a declaration of terminating distribution. It's essentially a document by which the trustee recites his or her power 
of of distribution in the current trust establishes the beneficiaries of the second trust as permissible appointees of this property. And then it directs the distribution of all of the original trust assets to this new trust. And the reason why we like this document is not just for purposes of the trust record and showing how an original trust terminates, but also because we like to include language in that document that makes the decanting applicable to, for example, accumulated income to existing trust corpus and after acquired property which can be a really important consideration for clients because oftentimes when they're creating an irrevocable trust, it serves as a recipient of assets from some other place, whether it's testamentary planning or as the remainder beneficiary of a grantor retained annuity trust. There are a bunch of reasons that a trust could later acquire property. So by having the trustee apply this terminating distribution to all types of property that are currently held or could be held in the future by the trust to the second trust. So that's the way that we would document it. Yeah, like a document basically announcing the termination and possibly transferring it to a new trust, possibly transferring it back to the original trust with the same terms minus the terms that you want to fix. Kind of two different ways of doing it. Let's just put the rubber to the road and give an example, right? So let's just say we have a trust that distributes all of the trust principal when the beneficiary attains age 40. The trustee has complete discretion to make distributions to that beneficiary and their descendants. And they come to you and for whatever reason, whether credit or protection, thinking forward, someone, the trustee, the beneficiary is wondering what sort of options that they have. What could they do? Well, that's a classic example, but also a very loaded question. Because it depends, and it depends on the risk tolerance of the person asking, whether it be the original grantor or the trustee. But in that circumstance, if we're concerned with asset protection, and like you said, it could be a concern about the beneficiary's ability to manage money at 40 on his or her own. But often that conversation is prompted by a beneficiary marrying someone that people may not trust and there not being a marital agreement in place. Or like you flagged at the beginning, Michael, sort of special needs planning. So addressing a beneficiary's potential to uh, need to qualify for government benefits. And in that circumstance, People are going to want to get rid of the age distribution and instead put it in the type of asset protection trust that we have discussed in that prior episode. So if we have absolute discretion, that checks off a box and gets us over the first hurdle. So the trustee has the ability to make distributions for any purpose. So the trustee is able to 
exercise that power in favor of a trust that could look very similar or, like you said, back to the same trust, but that modifies the terms so that there's not a provision by which the beneficiary gets to withdraw the trust corpus at age 40. I think what you said in there early is that it's the risk tolerance, right? Because what you see on the common law side of this is the trustee is taking an action. The trustee is declaring they're doing something, they're doing something, they're making a distribution to a new trust. And there's no blessing of that action by anybody, really. There's no mechanism for it to be blessed. The trustee is simply doing it. Similar to if, you know, if the trustee made a distribution, if I'm a trustee and I make a distribution to you, maybe I ask you for a receipt and release and an identification for it, but like there's no blessing of it. So the trustee makes that decanting and it's decanted. And there you go. If later the beneficiary or a beneficiary's creditor comes back and complains about that action, you have probate litigation to go to find out whether or not the action is going to be warranted because there's, there's no blessing. I think that helps us look then at statutory decanting. So, right, so we have common law decanting under the statute, and then many states have authorized decanting by statute. Yeah, and I think that statutory decanting in many ways alleviates some of the the risk concern that the players involved often have. Not to put too fine a point on it, but with common law decanting, in addition to potential complaints either from a beneficiary or a creditor of a beneficiary like a divorcing spouse, you also have some tax concerns to be thinking about. And really transfer tax and inclusion issues that can flow from common law decanting when this trustee is exercising a power not specifically enumerated under state statute. Now, bringing us to statutory decanting, it still is born out of the same theory. But since that seminal case that I referenced in 1940, more than half of the states in the U.S. have adopted some form of a decanting statute. Many are a form of the Uniform Trust Decanting Act. Some states have their own statutory scheme entirely. But all of these laws serve to prescribe the situations in which a decanting is permissible And what changes are permissible? So the statute will outline specifically whether a second trust can eliminate present beneficiaries or whether an interest in a trust can be accelerated. So it makes people a little bit more comfortable sometimes when they're doing it within the framework of a statute. So we have our common law, which led us to many states codifying exactly when and the process. More often in the statutory realm than in the common law realm, sometimes it requires notice to beneficiaries or may require a filing in a court system along those ways. So it provides both the when can you do it, what can you do, and what is the process. So states that 
don't have a decanting statute that are basing it on the common law may look to those states to see, okay, well, should we provide notice here? Should we not? Should we do consent here? Should we not? Do you have any thoughts on kind of those pieces? Sure. I think certainly with respect to notice, the more conservative people in a state that doesn't have statutory decanting may well look to the procedure prescribed by other states, because certainly having all of the parties aware of a decanting takes away some of the risk. So certainly I think that is an appropriate thing to consider when doing a common law decanting. The one thing that's important to flag would be tax issues that can arise from common law decanting. So under states that have a decanting statute, it might require, for example, consent of a party in a certain circumstance, or even just arguably notice to a beneficiary that there will be some interest that changes. So not so relevant if you're doing this procedure to correct an administrative provision. But if you're doing a decanting that will change beneficial interests in some regard, the common law approach to it could create a tax issue if you try to follow a statutory decanting procedure. So the IRS takes the stand that if a beneficiary's consent is required pursuant to state statute, then it will be overlooked for federal transfer tax purposes. So they won't challenge a statutory decanting if done pursuant to state law, right? With common law decantings, because you don't have the protection of a state law, certain things that you do can and will implicate federal transfer tax issues. And, and a big one would be if a beneficiary were to consent to a decanting that diminished his or her beneficial interest in some way. And a great example would be in the case of the age 40 trust that we talked about before. If there are existing withdrawal rights, if it's the type of age 40 trust that would permit a beneficiary to take, you know, a third of the trust at 30, half of the balance at 35, and then the rest at 40, a beneficiary consenting to a decanting where there are presently exercisable withdrawal rights would create a transfer tax issue for the beneficiary. So I think the big takeaway for that is that common law decanting, it needs to be undertaken carefully because statutory decanting can only guide you so far with respect to the procedure to use. Going back to that situation where we're in a state that doesn't have a statute, another alternative may be, in fact, to move the trust to a state with a statute. Do you have any experience with that? Sure. So I think that it's common to look toward trust-friendly jurisdictions when thinking about modifying a trust. So states like Delaware and New Hampshire. And so if you're in a jurisdiction like Connecticut that doesn't have a decanting statute at all, and you're either 
unable to decant pursuant to the trust terms or there's some trepidation about doing so because of the risk factors involved, then certainly there's an option to consider moving to another jurisdiction. In Connecticut, we have the benefit of the trustees of Connecticut Trust having a statutory power to move a trust situs. So that can be instrumental if we're dealing with an old trust agreement. It doesn't have a change of situs provision like the majority of a revocable trust would. So you can rely on state statute to transfer situs to a jurisdiction that has a decanting statute that you can take advantage of. Not to get too into the weeds on that topic, but when we're thinking about trusts, we have situs, which governs a trust administration, and you have governing law that deals more with the substantive aspect of the trust. So if you're relying on a change of situs provision, you need to go to a jurisdiction that specifically provides that their decanting statute is an exercise of a trustee's administrative powers. So in Connecticut, a good example of that would be New Hampshire. Not an exact neighbor, but you know, one of our New England states that we're somewhat comfortable with in that statute specifically provides that decanting is administrative in nature. So we're able to rely on that change of situs statute in Connecticut to get us to New Hampshire. And then within the framework of their decanting statute. Now, of course, the big requirement in all of that is that you can't just declare that you have a new trust situs, right? It doesn't quite work that way. You have to establish a nexus to the state that you're trying to establish situs in. So most often when you're looking toward a different state, that means finding a trustee in that state that can be appointed as a co-trustee or the only trustee, and then will participate in the decanting that happens in that state. So we've, we've hit the two. So we have common law decanting. We have statutory decanting. Many current drafters, modern drafters, are now including kind of our third option, which is effectively the ability to decant or modify under the trust agreement, right? So we've learned, particularly in a state like Connecticut, where we don't have the statutory decanting mechanism or strategy to follow that many drafters will put into the document, we hereby give the trustee the power to create new trusts. And then the document will lay out a process by which those that decanting action can happen. Yeah. We certainly love to draft that way. We're all about flexibility. So baking in that power administratively can be very helpful. And I think a big issue that that helps to allay is the risk of a trustee with respect to the other beneficiaries. So a hurdle with decanting is that you've somehow skirted the settlor's intent if that provision is there, you can't make that argument. So the trustee can be a little bit more comfortable exercising that power. What it doesn't necessarily fix 
are some of the tax issues that can flow from common law decanting because you're still not operating within the structure of a state decanting statute. So in that circumstance, you still do have to be mindful of potential transfer and income tax implications of modifying the trust pursuant to the trust terms. But it is a great option and one that I think more and more practitioners are relying on. So as we wrap up our episode today, maybe you could just give me a quick rundown of the tax consequences of decanting in general. So not specifically common law versus a statutory, but just some of those things that we need to watch out for when we're decanting. Sure. So if we are not talking about the distinction between common law and statutory decanting, which really deals more with inclusion and gift tax concern issues, there are really two big categories of tax implications that should be in mind, regardless of how you're going about it. The first and probably biggest concern relates to trusts that are chronologically exempt from the GST tax, right? They were irrevocable before the GST tax as we know it was enacted in 1986. So if you have a trust that is not subject to the GST system that we have, you have to be very careful to operate within specific safe harbors that are outlined under the regs. And obviously, modifying a trust in a way that frustrates a trust GST exemption would be a huge consequence and something you really have to avoid. The second category comes up a lot less frequently, So, you know, it's not something that we end up talking about a lot, but there are certain circumstances where you need to look closely at the assets held within a trust before decanting them. Typically, this comes up when you're changing the tax characteristics of the trust itself. So if you're decanting a trust to make it, for example, a non-grantor trust, then you need to look at closely held business interests that might be held by the trust that could have a negative basis. So arguably in that circumstance, there would be a gain realization event upon decanting. So certainly there are a number of different tax consequences that can flow from it. So it's important to be mindful of all of them when doing this. That's excellent. I think that was a great discussion over one of the strategies that we use when we think about modifying irrevocable trust, which is decanting. We starting looking at the common law and how it was permitted under certain circumstances, kind of the state systems that have given us some statutory framework. And then finally, with maybe doing it under the document itself, always kind of going back No matter where you're starting, you're going to be looking at the terms of the trust, what sort of distribution and powers does a trustee have, but also what sort of changes you're ultimately trying to make as you do that. And often decanting will come out as one of the answers for us, but it's not always the answer. Sometimes there are other strategies to use, and that's what we're going to talk about in our next episode. Absolutely. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning, Hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the Private Client Services Department at Wigan and Dana. At Wigan and Dana, our aim is preserving the wealth that a family has worked so hard to create 
and pride ourselves in offering value-driven solutions and results. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, share episodes with your clients, and follow our highly talented, creative, and experienced lawyers on LinkedIn for even more great insight. We'll see you next time on Future Focused Sophisticated Estate Planning.